0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
2: Yes, very good afternoon to you. We're going to look through the numbers of what it was, a pretty epic grain harvest in Victoria today with the largest East East Coast storage and handler, Grain Corp we 're talking flooded silos well silos that were flooded from the grain being harvested elsewhere we 're talking uh, huge logistical challenges as crops were being harvested north and south all at the same time and some record numbers at the end of it all if you 've got a comment to make we 'd love to hear from you thirteen hundred nine double seven triple two to call or text zero four six seven eight four two seven double two We talked right to repair with the federal government yesterday they want to look at the issue and open up. More uh, repair options to farmers, make companies that protect their intellectual property share things like diagnostics and manuals and, uh, and the ability to repair machinery with those who would like to do it either on farm or independent service providers. We're going to hear an argument for more work in that space from someone who would know today on the program as well. Plus, we got the best machine for you, the best machine at the Wimmera Machinery Field Days. That award was given as well, and I love awards. You'll hear about that today on the program. Right now, though, some rural news with Emma Field. G'day, Emma.
3: G'day, Warwick. Making rural news this Friday. The Federal Government continues to stand by its plans to end the practice of live export of sheep from Australia. The Assistant Minister of Trade and Manufacturing has told delegates at the ABARES conference in Canberra this week the Government plans to use funds built up by the boxed meat trade to fill the void left by the end of live sheep exports. Senator Tim Ayres says the Government believes more abattoir jobs will be good for regional economies.
4: The Government will work carefully uh, with the sector, particularly in Western Australia, uh, to effect the best uh, transition and other arrangements to ensure uh, that um, that their interests are taken into account too. I have to say that the the government's ambitions in terms of the national reconstruction fund and rebuilding our meat processing sector and focusing on exports of uh, chilled and boxed meat overseas uh, is is the way of the future here. Uh, that is the opportunity. Uh, That that means that we continue to export uh, meat products overseas uh, in increasing volumes. Our focus on increased market access to economies, particularly in the context of the EU Free Trade Agreement, Um, but also in lifting our industrial capability in meat processing, because, again, that is where the good jobs are in country towns, and we're determined to continue prosecuting that agenda.
3: A major Australian pastoral company has reached a milestone in its mission to reduce carbon emissions. Consolidated Pastoral Company has just received its carbon and methane emissions baseline data, which it'll apply to its holdings in Australia and Indonesia. The company, which has sold carbon credits in the past, has cattle properties and feedlots, and CEO Troy Setter says this work will help it to do more in this space.
5: We've just finished the first draft of our um, carbon emissions uh, and methane emissions baseline work. Um, there's still more work to do, but we're getting close to uh, having a really objective baseline so then we can work even harder at reducing our emissions. We've just got it this week, and uh, there's some checks and, and balances to do on there. There's multiple ways to, to calculate things, and we're just reviewing through that now, and then the, uh, the heavy lifting gets going on what are the ways to uh, further reduce our emissions.
3: Over summer, cotton growers in Queensland and New South Wales experienced the worst, most widespread chemical spray drift incidents on record. Impacted farmers say those who caused millions of dollars worth of damage to their crops have no excuse for their illegal practices and are calling on regulators to get tough on offenders. The EPA's Carmen Dwyer says the organisation is on the ground telling farmers about their obligations and investigating breaches.
6: We are absolutely going to use every regulatory tool in our power to go to those operators who are maliciously, negligently or just lazy in their application of pesticides. Dob them in. We're coming for them. It's $120,000 is the maximum fine for an individual and $250,000 for a corporation for a single offence. But, of course, you might have committed multiple offences.
3: Let's head right up to the tip of Australia now, where the 2022 to 2023 wet season has been the wettest on record. For some remote residents, it means they'll be isolated for at least another four months. In the heart of Cape York Peninsula lies Picananee Plains, 176,000 hectares of rainforest woodlands, wetlands and grasslands, owned by the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. And they've recorded 2,420 millimetres or nearly two and a half metres of rain since Christmas. Assistant Sanctuary Manager Sally Gray says it's been a wild few months.
1: We are actually experiencing the wettest wet season on record ever for this part of the country. So. The bomb. the Bureau, has been keeping rain for records for this area for 100 years, and this is the biggest wet season we've had. So while we don't flood as such in our homestead, we experience inundation all around us. Uh, we can't move out of our homestead at the moment without bogging ankle deep as we walk around in the grass, and we certainly cannot get off the property unless we have a helicopter Uh, We haven't been able to get to our front gate, which is five kilometres away since uh, just before Christmas. So we're into a very prolonged period of isolation up here. So we probably won't see anyone else on the property for up to four months, maybe even longer.
3: It really does make our wet spring look a little bit small, doesn't it, Warwick? But that wraps up Rural News for this week.
2: Yeah, never compete with Northern Australia on (laughs) rainfall figures. Emma, thank you very much for that. Emma Field there with Rural News. What was that figure? 2,420 millimetres. Two and a half metres of rain since Christmas. I can't wrap my head around that. It's probably better I'm a southerner than being up there. Let's move away. Let's talk some big numbers for Victoria, shall we? I think we need to get back on track, really, on the country. Our Grain Corp has put a bow on another massive grain harvest out of Victoria that set a number of individual records. The largest storage and handler of grain on the east coast of Australia says it was a difficult season with floods, crumbling roads and weather events making it difficult to get the harvest in as early as possible. But despite those difficulties, the numbers in some of these areas are simply staggering. As Jason Shanley, senior manager of national operations at GrainCorp, explains.
7: Yeah, look, it, it was uh, it was it was a very big year. Um, look, if you look at uh, country Victoria, just under four million tonnes. A, a fair bit of direct harvest grains goes uh, down to Geelong Port. So, if you include that, uh, about four point one million tonnes received. So. Um, yeah, you know, certainly a, a bit bigger than the previous two seasons, which have you know were also quite large for Victoria as well. So yeah, very good year.
2: Is that a record in receivables for you?
7: It is uh, in in some clusters, so uh, not 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 the biggest ever for the whole state, but certainly uh, a couple of large clusters. We had uh, record tons in the Wimmera and the uh, Southern Mallee clusters. So very good results there. But generally, um, yeah, all of the. All of the uh, six clusters performed very well.
2: Can you break down those clusters just so we can get an idea of where they are and, and go through those records for us?
7: Yeah, so the Wimmera, um, which pretty much covers, uh, I, I guess, uh, just, uh, just over the border, um, south of uh, South Australia, all the way down to Hamilton, um, took uh, over 820,000 tonnes in that area. The Southern Mallee cluster, we took over 800,000 tonnes there, so those were two both both record uh, receivables for those two clusters. Uh, northeast Victoria, so that covers actually covers uh, we've got a couple of sites just over the border in New South Wales there, so it's sort of Oaklands, uh, Deniliquin, Tokeemore, and then down down uh, into uh, I guess as far south as Namurka, um, and pretty good tonnes there, over 700,000 tonnes in that area. The Swan Hill cluster, they had yeah, one of their biggest years for a long time. We took uh, over 630,000 tons in that area. Uh, Central Victoria, um, this, this is sort of Berrybank, Westmere, um, all the way up to Murchison and, and, and upper around the Chukaway. Um, and again, very well, uh, very good tons there, over 580,000 tons in that area. Uh, and the Northern Mallee, we took uh, a bit over 350,000 tons in that cluster.
2: So, so that's interesting, and, and those two areas that you mentioned earlier, they're the records for this year from Victoria?
7: Yeah, absolutely, and if, if you break that down to uh, individual sites, uh, Neil, we had a very good year there, um, took over 230,000 tonnes there, so that was a record for them, uh, Natty Mark did very well, over 104,000 tonnes there, um, Donald was was uh, over 160,000 tonnes, and uh, over, just, just shy of 160,000 tonnes in at Deniliquin, so... Um, yeah, all site records for those four sites in Victoria.
2: and then I suppose in terms of your system, how has it gone handling such a big harvest? I'd imagine in a way you knew it was coming.
7: Yeah, look, it was it, it was quite challenging because um, you know, normally I I guess we'll were, we we're probably four to six weeks behind um, you know, where we what our usual start date would be. Um but we also had that challenge of of harvests going you know, pretty much right through northern, southern New South Wales and Victoria all running around the same time. So we we probably had uh, anywhere up to 120, 130 sites uh, all operating at the same time. So from an equipment perspective, it was a challenge for us. Um, You know, we would normally roll equipment uh, as harvest finishes up north. We'd roll more equipment down south to uh, give us a bit more firepower. But, um, look, we certainly handled it really well. Um, We, you know, in terms of... uh, um, you know quality in victoria it was uh yeah pleasantly surprising I think uh you know we we all probably thought with with all the wet weather that we had leading into harvest and the late finish that um, that there might have been some quality issues there, but the large majority of the crop in victoria um you know it it, it was either milling grades in in wheat or um, you know a, a fair chunk of it went uh, malt grade in barley and and just shy of a million tonnes uh, in, in canola, which um, which was very good.
2: How much longer did the harvest roll on than, say, it traditionally would in Victoria? What was your uh, – do you have an official end date?
7: Yeah, look, we, we – uh, I guess we officially closed. Uh, Geelong was the the last site to close. I think we closed on the 12th of February, um, give or take a couple of days there. Don't quote me on that. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, early February for uh, for most sites and, and yeah, finishing uh, that around the 12th of February in Geelong. So
2: is that later than usual?
7: Yeah, look, it is, but it's not terribly later, to be honest. Um, some of those sites down in the, the southwestern area do tend to, you know, go late into January in most years. But, um, you know, a, a couple of weeks later, I think as we, you know, we had some pretty decent weather as we got into it, um, we certainly caught up. Um, I'd, I'd say we caught up a fair bit. We were probably expecting that we might be going a bit longer than that. So, yeah, and look there were there were some big days. Uh Particularly between, uh, sort of, a week or two before Christmas, right through to just after New Year's, we were taking significant tons during that period. It was definitely the peak, um, and then it then it slowed off after that.
2: Because at times in the harvest, particularly in that northwest sort of part of Victoria and that southern uh, southwest part of New South Wales, there was literally floodwaters cutting off your sites from from literally the grain at points too. So that is certainly yeah, well something to remember, but but certainly a big feature of this year that I can't. I can't imagine many people would have a memory of having to plan for something like that in the past in those areas.
7: Yeah absolutely and um, you know when we talk about uh, planning uh, and, and I guess the actions of our people um, you know we certainly do our bit where we can to help out in those areas and you know I look at Yalta um, just up north of Mildura there and um, yeah, we, yeah we talk about flooding <laughs> there's, there's flooding where you, uh, you know it's unexpected and, and you just get a big dump of rain and then there's that uh, that flooding up around that area, and and you know especially Chuka, where you you know the water's coming, um, you know down the down the river, and the river's just you know breaking its banks everywhere, and you know that that's probably uh, you know I, I guess more more terrifying really on the on the basis that you know it's coming, but you're not quite sure when it's going to get there. But certainly our teams did a lot of work in in preparing for that, um, and our site at Yalta there was you know absolutely surrounded by water and. Yeah, So we spent a lot of time planning for that, uh, planning how we could still service the growers in that area and, and obviously protect that site as well. So um, yeah, some really good efforts from from everyone involved there, not only within Graincorp, but you know local councils and and growers that were working with us as well.
2: How did the site hold up ultimately to Yelta? Will it be uh, good and ready to go next year?
7: Yeah, absolutely. So our, our levy banks that we put in place um, held. So um you know that was very important in just making sure that that site is, uh, is is ready to go um you know without uh too much work being required so it was um yeah definitely definitely well planned well executed um and and certainly certainly saved that site uh, particularly the the sites uh, on the i think it's the south of that um, meridian highway there
2: Can you give us some insight on on how Grain Corp sites performed in elsewhere? Was Victoria a standout for you or or were New South Wales and Queensland equally big? Uh, Look,
7: Victoria was definitely the standout in terms of tonnes. But when we look at uh, Queensland, had some really good results up there, Um, particularly central Queensland. They had their biggest year up there for... I think growers up there were saying their biggest year for sort of around 20 25 years um, so yeah, it was very pleasing up there we filled all the sites up there um, and then all, all of the areas of Queensland did, did really well we uh, we, we had uh, I think uh, just shy of 2.2 2 million tons in that in that region Um new south wales was probably a bit more of a challenge um a lot of a lot of flood affected areas there um at both both ends of the state really so but look still still performed really well um i think around 2.2.5 million in in uh, each of the in the north and, and 2.5 in the south as well thereabouts
2: that's jason shanley grain corp senior manager of national operations speaking there are you in one of those record areas? Is it one of those good record years where you get a huge amount and it's nice or were the difficulties of La Nina and rain and uh, clearly flooding's effect on not only uh, areas that were flooded, but the roads as well. Did that take the shine on what was a record harvest? You can let us know zero four six seven eight four two seven double two to send us a text. Now, As you've heard on this program this week, the federal government revealed plans to consult the agriculture industry on the right to repair issue, giving those who buy equipment the right to be able to repair and maintain and service it. Assistant Treasurer Andrew Lee told the Victorian country at this program last uh, yesterday that they want to expand the motor vehicle service and repair information sharing scheme to include agricultural machinery. Here's a bit of that conversation.
8: It's an issue of consumer sovereignty. It's also an issue of competition in the repair market. In the context of uh, passenger motor vehicles, we had a a problem where if data wasn't being shared, independent mechanics would basically go to the wall. Uh, They'd be able to wash the wheels, but they wouldn't be able to get under the hood. It's been important in regional areas because uh, people often would have to otherwise drive a long way to get to an authorised dealer. Instead, they can use an independent mechanic. And all those same principles flow through to farm machinery.
2: Now, someone who knows the problems that the agriculture sector is facing when trying to fix machinery is Darren Downey from Orbost in Far East Victoria, who runs an engineering company which for the past 36 years is often called upon to help farms repair equipment along with earth moving and logging machines. Darren talked to Annie Brown about this issue, saying information from manufacturers needs to be made available for those who help repair machinery to make things like farming viable
9: the biggest problem that we've found is that not just in the agricultural sector but also in the earth moving sector we've found problems uh, getting uh, the information needed from the bigger um, earth moving and and, and tractor companies uh, when there is um, a breakdown that a farmer has and quite often these companies tend to like to protect the the information that they have um, that their technicians use Um, but the biggest problem is that Quite often farmers or, you know, if we've got to use a third party to, to, to do a repair, getting hold of these people is very difficult. And to get someone on site immediately when you've got a, a machine breakdown is, uh, is very difficult. And, the, and what we come up against is that, you know, when, when we, we're on the spot and able to help farmers or, or earth-moving people, we just can't get the information from the company that we need to be able to make those repairs immediately. Quite often, the other problem that we come up against is that at times we do get um, they'll send in their technician, which you know isn't always immediate for remote rural areas. It can be a you know a day or two days away, which you not only have the downtime of the of the machine, but quite often um, at times the the uh, technician that they'll send, even though they've been tra- factory trained and with all the information. Uh, Quite often they're younger people that are less experienced in in diagnosis. They've been taught from the factory but often they don't have the the lateral ability to be able to diagnose uh, problems on the spot.
10: That sounds incredibly frustrating Darren. So you're based out in Orbost. So how long does it take you to get somebody out there to fix some of these machineries, some of these machines that you come up against?
9: Well look sometimes uh, you know, look, you don't want to can these companies totally because, you know, often the the nearest dealers do the best that they can. But often if um, if it's harvest time or if it's, uh, you know, at busy times, you can't always get somebody straight away. So, you know, they, you might ring them and say, oh and they might say that, well, you know, we can't send somebody out for a day or two days d- depending on their workload. Well, you know, you've, you've got... People that have got machinery that's broken down, expensive machinery that they need to have working
10: does it cost more as well to repair your machinery this way?
9: Oh definitely well you know often often these companies um, you know they they tend to be the top of the tree as as far as you know charging out and their charge out rates for for um, clients that they've got to come and service um, which that in itself is pretty unfair i mean you know, you know the idea of having factory-based people like that is to keep their machinery going. You know, it shouldn't be to, to make money at all costs for the people that they sell the machinery to because they're not only making the, the, the coin when they're selling or, or leasing the machinery, they're making a damn side more money when they've, they've got to send out somebody to try and diagnose a problem and fix a problem and then charge them exorbitant rates to be able to do that.
10: DARREN, you were listening to the Country Hour yesterday and you texted in um, telling us a bit about what you come up against. And So you heard uh, Andrew Lee, the Assistant Treasurer, speak yesterday saying that he wants to hear from industry, he wants to consult more, and wants to expand the motor vehicle service and repair information sharing scheme to include agricultural machinery. I guess, what would you like to see happen in to change this current situation?
9: The other side of this coin is that machinery, people that sell machinery um, look after the name of their machinery. So they don't want any Tom, Dick and Harry that can with, in, uh, the, with access to this, this information to be able to fiddle around when they haven't got a lot of idea what they're doing. But I think that under the circumstances, that information, the, the, the regulations or some regulation needs to be introduced so that there is mandatory access to that information um, after a machine is sold to the repair industry. Now, who you define as the repair industry, I don't really know because you know I, I also understand that in remote rural properties, um, quite often the mechanics and their farmers, if they've grown up with the ability to be able to do that, well, those people need to have access to that information. In my opinion, all that information should be available pretty much to everyone. Some of the machinery that we've worked on, and, and just one point comes into mind, we had a, uh, a paving machine that came over from Denmark, alright, this machine broke down here um, a couple of years ago, and we couldn't fix that machine immediately. We, the, the only way that we could go about it is that we had to actually get online, send an email to Denmark to, to be able to get the information to do it. Now, it took two days to do it, to be able to do that, to, to be able to troubleshoot a problem. Some of the other companies that we deal with will have that information actually online, They want to have that information out there because the machinery that they supply, they want to have it going so they've got a good reputation and people will want to buy their machinery because they've got that immediate backup when it's needed. And to my mind, that is the best way to do business for those
2: companies. That's Darren Downey from Orbost speaking there to Annie Brown about the right to repair issue. There may be some movement with the government saying they're going to look to expand their uh, motor vehicle service and repair information sharing scheme to include agricultural equipment. How they do that, that's what... Andrew Lee is looking for from industry some advice and some information and some thoughts coming in on that. Nick in Lakes Entrance saying, Hi, oh, work, this problem with repairing farm machinery has been going on for ages. There was a huge program on Landline a while ago about this in the USA. Yes, Nick, and we've talked about it lots on this program too. The new bit is that movement. Is the government saying they're willing to look at this and make changes, whether they make it mandatory voluntary or do what they've done in the usa so in the usa there's a a memorandum of understanding with equipment manufacturers to release that information through uh to farmers that was done through the american farm bureau uh the the thing is with australia is do you look for something similar here do you want the nff or someone to negotiate something here or do you want government involvement and regulation to make sure it's confirmed as always being available that's what the government's working its way through. Thank you for your text. And just on the issue of the record grain harvest and what we heard from GrainCorp with those numbers, a couple of record numbers and individual site records as well, Jamie from Caria uh, here was on the text line says, the, big, the downfall of a big Victorian harvest is the busted roads around my place from the amount of grain that's being transported uh, on it. Uh, as I said late last year, rain equals grain. Thank you very much for that as well, Jamie. Uh, keep the text coming, zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. if you want to get involved in the program. We're going to talk about an innovative idea to, well, encourage more vets into regional areas on the program shortly. We'll also have a look at the best machine from the Wimmer and Machinery Field Days. Right now, though, let's find out what's making regional news headlines. And in the regional newsroom for us again today is Madeline Spencer, Good afternoon, Madeline.
0: Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news, the Australian Education Union is calling for more action to address teacher shortages across regional Victoria. It comes amid reports that many vacancies haven't been filled across the state more than halfway into Term 1. It's forcing schools to employ casual relief teachers and increase class sizes. An AU representative says they can't afford to lose a single teacher in the public system. House prices in some parts of regional Victoria have seen record declines over the past year in line with the latest national figures from CoreLogic. Logic. Golden Plains, Ballarat and South Gippsland Council areas saw record falls over the last 12 months. Across regional Victoria, the average decline was 5.1%. CoreLogic's Head of Research, Eliza Owen, says rising inflation and interest rates are largely to blame, but it's still too early to tell if the downturn will continue. An interim administrator has been appointed to Moira Shire Council following the dismissal of all councillors this week. The Minister for Local Government has chosen John Tanner AM for the role. Mr Tanner was one of the commissioners who led an inquiry into the council's work. The commissioner's final report detailed an erosion in good governance and evidence from the inquiry has been sent to the State Coroner and the Anti-Corruption Commission. Mr Tanner will take on the role of independent administrator for three months until a panel of administrators is appointed for the next five years. Southwest Victorian footballer Liam Picken has launched legal action against the AFL, his club and doctors after concussion issues. The former Western Bulldogs player suffered multiple concussions through his 198-game career, saying he returned to full training and then played despite having ongoing symptoms. Pickin retired from the Bulldogs in 2019 after almost a decade with the club due to ongoing concussion symptoms. For more news anytime, visit abc.net.au forward slash news.
2: Thanks, Madeline. Madeline Spencer there with regional news headlines.
1: The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
2: Andy's also complaining about the cost of repairing farm machinery on the text line. Had a dealer's mechanic do a three-hour job, labour and travelling. It was 980 bucks plus parts, says Andy on the text line. Anyway, I'm not making a judgment on how bad or good that is because I have no idea the work that was going on. But I love that you shared it with us. And please never stop. That's good info, Thirteen hundred nine double seven triple two. if you want to give us a ring as well. Let's head to the Weather Bureau and find out what the weather's going to be like, not only today, but into the weekend and early next week. Mark Analak is a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, and he can join you now. G'day, Mark. Good afternoon, Warwick. How are you going? It is a good afternoon, because the weather looks pretty good in northern Victoria, at least. What's it like around Victoria? Yeah,
8: I can imagine you looking out the window there, and it's nice, clear skies, but uh, that's not the case for the whole of the state. Look, northern parts of the state, yes, mostly clear skies, a little bit of cloud sort of up around Mildura away, but uh, for the most part, northern parts of the state or north of the divide, cloud-free and has been for the last sort of uh, 12, 24 hours, giving us some pretty uh, cool night overnight. Southern parts of the state, uh, south of the Divide, we've been blanketed in quite an extensive area of low cloud um, and some of that low cloud has produced some light, drizzly showers uh, and I think rainfall figures have been generally less than a few millimetres but uh, those sort of exposed coasts and Otway ranges have probably seen the most of the rainfall uh, since 9 o'clock yesterday. Um, Like I said, a few millimetres but uh, today that cloud is starting to break up and we see it breaking up from the north. So uh, those over the southwest district and um, sort of southwest Gippsland uh, probably still seeing some cloud, but it is slowly breaking away from the north and uh, east Gippsland um, and Wimmera districts are starting to see some sunlight as well coming through the the cloud. The next 24 hours, um, probably continue in this same manner with uh, generally... Fine conditions across the state, a little bit of cloud, partly cloudy skies in the, in the south but mostly clear skies in the north. Tomorrow um, we do have an upper level disturbance making its way in from the west. As that upper level disturbance approaches we'll see an increase in cloud, particularly on and south of the ranges and we could see some show- afternoon showers developing about the central ranges and the southwest from, from sort of lunchtime onwards. Um, as that upper level disturbance moves across Saturday night into Sunday, we're likely to see an increase in shower activity across uh, pretty much the entire state. Uh, maybe not the northwest corner. Um, Mallee and Wimmera probably won't see too much in the way of rainfall, but for the remaining parts of the state, we will see an increase in shower activity and possibly even some thunderstorms about. Um, sort of the north-central, northeast ranges and uh, sort of north of the divide um, on Sunday afternoon. The good news is that clears out pretty quickly to the east and by Monday we're back into mostly fine conditions. There might be the odd residual shower around sort of Gippsland Way but uh, shouldn't last too much longer than than the morning on Monday. Um, But uh, following that, we'll be dominated by a ridge of high pressure and fine conditions in terms of rainfall amounts, um, look, not too much of the order of single-figure um, rainfall amounts, but uh, the rainfall on Sunday could produce falls of 10 to 20 millimetres about those uh, northern ranges with the, with the thunderstorms. So uh, they do, do seem to have a bit of depth to them, and uh, those showers could be a little bit heavy at times on Sunday. Um, yeah, for the rest of next week, look, it's a long way away, but it looks like there could be another trough coming through mid to late next week, and we'll keep an eye on that one. But uh, for the most part, the start of next week looks like it'll be fine, Warwick.
2: Yeah, and just uh, with uh, with that, that's really the only rain. that The ranges is there, 10 to 20 mils. There's not much sort of around, is there?
8: Yeah, not really. I mean, there will be showers pretty much um, statewide, apart from the northwest on Sunday, of the order of a few millimetres here and there. But um, where the upper low is is going to be situated sort of over the north country, north central and uh, northeast districts, Uh, that's probably where we'll see the higher falls and we could see falls of up to, as I said, 10 to 20 millimetres if you get caught under a thunderstorm.
2: We're going to start questioning you about a break soon. Uh, I hope you're getting ready for that, Mark.
8: Oh, isn't break usually around Anzac? Though?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll like you know, you know, we'll in, in a week or two, we'll be starting to, to wind up yeah, on that. Uh, looking at the uh bureau's website, the three delightful words, no warnings current, sitting there yeah. at the moment for Victoria, but across the weekend, are we likely to have any warnings?
8: Um. Not at this stage, I don't think. I'm not really thinking about those warnings, so it's not on my radar. So I would say we could be warning free this weekend.
2: Beautiful. Uh, Anything else we need to know, mate? No, have a good day. Yeah, ripper. Enjoy the rest of your day. (laughs) Thanks, (laughs) mate. Cheers, see (laughs) you. Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau taking you through the full forecast there. What's likely to come is a pretty settled period of time that we're in. But we'll keep an eye obviously on the weather as we do on the Country Hour at the same time every day, Monday to Friday in the program. You're listening to uh, the Country Hour Work Along with You. It is 23 to 1 o'clock. Let's talk vets now because as the shortage of vets across regional Australia continues to cause a headache for farmers and raise concerns for the welfare of farm animals. One of Australia's largest rural veterinary businesses is calling for government support. Managing Director of APM Animal Care Chris Richards says graduating veterinary students need incentives to live and work in regional areas. So he's calling for urgent hex incentives, such as uh, dropping tens of thousands of dollars off student debts for studying veterinary degrees. Uh, for studying vets, sorry, to attract them to the regions for at least a four-year placement, similar to what medical and teaching degrees can offer already. He's speaking here with Jane McNaughton.
11: I was putting a lot of pressure on the on the veterinary on the veterinarians because they're obviously very focused on meeting the needs of their clients, and they're subsequently working, you know huge hours in order to, to meet the uh, the needs of their clients and to provide the vet care and, and that for animals.
12: Are there just not as many people that are interested in becoming vets at the moment, Chris?
11: No, I don't think it's about that. I think it's about, if you sort of look at what's happening in the veterinary schools, there's a, there's a big change to what's happened. So, you know, for example, at, at Melbourne University, they have 50 fee-paying uh, international students. And the likelihood is that, you know, probably 90% of those go back to their home to uh, to practice as vets. So there's certainly plenty of vets coming out of the the veterinary um, schools, but we're just uh, not able to attract as many uh, to the regional areas as what uh, as what we'd like, and or, or or really as what we need, because there's just a increased demand. It's very competitive, and a high demand course to get into vet school. You know, it would be great if if the Commonwealth made you know another 50 or 100 places available, because there's certainly a a um, increased demand out there. You know, for example. At APM we, we could uh, employ fifty more vets today just to meet the uh, increased demand that we're seeing in rural and regional Australia.
12: So what's your suggestion to fix this issue?
11: Well, there's no doubt that um you know student debt is uh, is a huge issue for for all veterinary students. You know, the, those that are even on uh, Commonwealth funded places, they've still got um, $70,000, $80,000 debts when they graduate, which is, uh, you know, a huge burden for them. So, you know, any anything that would reduce that uh, debt would certainly be attractive. And so we really want to see um, the government look at things such as tax forgiveness or or ways to support um, those students that come into rural and regional areas. If If we can have them come in for four or five years, then there's a very high likelihood that they'll continue their careers in the regional areas.
12: With the vets that end up going and staying in city areas, obviously they wouldn't be treating cattle or sheep or anything like that anywhere near as much as being in a farming region. So do you think that the actual type of care might also be another reason that people wanting to stay in the city and just, you know, take care of dogs and cats rather than larger animals?
11: I think the uh, the bigger issue is I don't think they know what it, what is out in the in the regional areas. So you know most of the exposures that they get to when they're in veterinary schools are with uh, cats and dogs in the city city areas. Whereas those who do come out to the regional areas just see you know the uh, diversity of work that happens and the ability to apply their their skills and and develop their skills across multiple species and. You know, I mean, we we often talk at APIM around how you know, as a rural, rural and regional veterinary uh, provider, that you know, every day is is an adventure, and you just never know what you're going to get on a day-to-day basis when it comes to different species or different things that uh, need to be done.
12: So, what you're talking about isn't necessarily uh, trying to get more people to practice being a vet and going to school, because it sounds like there's enough of them. It's just about getting them out of the cities into the regions.
11: That's right. We've got to get them out there. You know, get them into the regions. We. We do things like we do have some scholarships for vet students to come in um, when they're at vet school to come out and experience our clinics. And we have a a fairly high uh, retention rate of those people. So, you know, it's really about incentivising students as well as graduates to come into the regional areas to see what it's all about. Because, you know, once they get out there, it certainly opens up their eyes. But when it comes to, you know, vet schools, I mean, one of the reasons we can't, you know, we struggle to get a lot of vet students out there is because it's quite expensive. By the time you travel out to the to the regional areas and then you have to, you know, you have the costs of accommodation and things like that for two or three weeks. It's just not something that vet students who are getting these high, um, you know, debt levels are are really uh, looking to do.
12: With an increasing cattle herd and also a huge amount of sheep in Australia at the moment, what are the consequences for getting this wrong?
11: Oh, if we get it wrong, then, um, you know, potentially you've got animal welfare issues. I mean, I think the other thing that's on everyone's mind at the moment too is that surveillance for some of the uh, exotic diseases is also really critical. You know, we've got uh, FMD and uh, lumpy skin disease on our on our doorsteps up in Asia. So the consequence is that we just don't have enough vets out there doing disease surveillance.
12: Internationally, are other countries offering incentives such as the one that you're suggesting?
11: New Zealand offer a similar program to what we're requesting for vets who want to go into rural areas, and they. They offer $55,000 over five years to graduates that go and spend spend those five years in the in the regional areas. So that is one of our competition is that you've basically got Australian taxpayers funding, you know, a significant number of veterinary places in our veterinary schools, and those uh, you know a significant number of those graduates actually going to other countries. So we're just calling on some on, on a similar program to be able to retain them in uh, in Australia.
2: Do you think that will help get more vets into regional areas? Maybe you can get in touch with us and let us know. That's the APM Managing Director, Chris Richards, speaking there with Jane McNaughton. You're listening to The Country Hour. This one's for you, Grain Growers. Grain Growers looking to get into manufacturing and developing their own brands have the opportunity to take part in a value-adding program supported by the GRDC, the Grains Research and Development Corporation. The 12-week program starts in April and comes after a similar red meat value-add program was run last year. Angus Verley is speaking here with Amy Colley, a food industry expert involved in delivering it.
6: So the Grains Value Add Program is a wonderful opportunity uh, for grain growers around the country to do a program that can help them develop an idea that they want to explore for a food business product and develop that idea with a whole range of support and industry experts to be able to get that product to market.
5: Okay, so it would be about the grower doing everything, not just the growing, doing the growing, developing a brand, developing a product and marketing it?
6: Absolutely, but with a lot of support. Uh, so they might, they might be growing a crop um, as a commodity, but in the back of their minds, perhaps they want to develop their own brand, their own product, food product, that they can um, sell through retail or perhaps sell into food service or even have it as something that people come to the farm to buy.
5: What sort of products do you envisage?
6: So I guess it depends on the crop, but it could be anything from biscuits, um, perhaps their own flour, pasta, muesli bars, a muesli blend. The ideas are a little bit endless um, and open to... I guess for farmers to really use their own creativity and know what they're producing um, is of a super high quality and that the Australian market is really interested in more domestic homegrown products.
5: So to assist anyone who'd who'd like to go down this path, there is this, uh, this program that they can participate in?
6: Yes, so the program starts on the 3rd of April and it's a twelve-week program. It's predominantly online, but we do bring a cohort of of farmers, so a group of farmers that go online, um, that participate in the program. We bring them together as well as a group, and we, along the way, we open them their ideas um, up to a whole range of industry experts.
5: Does it cost money?
6: It does cost money, but it's um, fortunately it's a collaboration and supported by GRDC which is a fantastic opportunity and the program is delivered by farmers to founders and straight to the source and what we bring um, is industry experts is coaching um, on all sorts of aspects of business development.
5: So at the end of those 12 weeks how well equipped should those farmer participants be?
6: Well I'd say they're very well equipped to take their product to market. We've done this program before um, with red meat producers, we did this last year and so it was wonderful to see a group of farmers take their idea all the way to validate it and know that they felt rest assured that they could take a product to market soon after that 12 week program.
5: So has that happened from last year? Have people developed their own products and, and are selling them?
6: Absolutely they have. Um, They're selling them through the farm gate, they're selling them through retail contacts um, that they've made through the program that they wouldn't have otherwise had access to if they were just doing it on their own.
5: Is this going to suit perhaps a a smaller scale farmer more when they're looking to to value add if they don't have have scale?
6: It could suit a smaller-scale uh, farmer, that's right. Um, however, even with larger-scale f- farmers, there's the opportunity to portion um, a, a section of their farm and be able to sort of work on that as the value-added um, proponent.
5: What's, what's the incentive, I suppose, because grain growers are, are busy people like all farmers just doing the growing that I mentioned earlier. Uh, this sounds like a lot of extra work. What's the incentive to, to go down this path?
6: I guess one of the biggest incentives is the return on the investment. So when you've got a commodity crop, you've obviously got a certain price that you're going to gain for that. When you're able to value add um, a product, then there is an exponential difference in the return. One of our examples here that we've got a packet of um, corn chips, in fact, that for 170 grams, I purchased that packet of corn chips for $11, and they fly out the door.
2: That is Amy Colley talking about some expensive corn chips. Uh, she's from Straight to the Source speaking with Angus Verley about the GRDC supported grains value add program. Uh, this is something that came out of ABARES this week in Canberra. References to an emerging corporate acronym ESG or Environmental, Social and Governance are growing amongst Australian agribusinesses and it could be set to change the way farming is done. But what does it actually mean, and why is it the term at the moment on everybody's lips? Alice Marshall has this report.
13: ESG. You might have heard of it maybe from your bank manager or perhaps in a conference setting, but let's break down what it could actually mean for your farming business. ESG encases three major areas. Environment, covering factors like soil health and emissions. Social, covering areas like responsible sourcing and employee engagement. And Governance covering food and work safety. It's a small acronym that encompasses some pretty lofty topics. Combank's National Director of Agribusiness, Carmel Onions, says more than anything, ESG is a disruption.
6: It's uh, almost like a business disruption. It's a lot of change, changing expectations for farmers around how they produce and how they sell and how they tell their story. So it's a lot of change for farmers to deal with.
13: KPMG's leader of corporate ESG strategy, Robert Poole, described the concept as a set of guidelines governing how businesses look after the environment and their people.
14: Uh, Well, I, I kind of define it as the big three. That would be emissions reduction... Uh, circularity, so how you can recycle things and stop them going into landfill, and then ethical sourcing, so buying it from reputational sources that look after their people and look after the environment themselves, and then how all of that's governed and, and, and decisions are made.
13: The problem, however, is that ESG guidelines have no national or global set of standards and are instead open to interpretation by individual businesses. As of December 2022... All New Zealand farmers are required to calculate their greenhouse gas emissions and must have a written plan in place to manage these emissions by December 2024. Here's Robert Poole again.
14: Um, Baselining is probably almost certainly necessary, I can't see any future where we won't have a similar know your number kind of strategy in Australia and that will be a base level reporting and we've been working on these nutrient calculators, mass balance calculators for a long long time in agriculture so that the, the universities and the sectors are starting to build those up so it's now a matter of just getting those in use getting that adopted through the sector and agri- I'm confident Farmers Ag will be more than capable of um, delivering some of that baseline. I think it's a been a, a tradition in agriculture that's building in terms of monitoring what happens on farm more and more. Um, and as technology started to be more introduced to farms, so everything from the mobile phone through to sensors and satellite data, um, we definitely have to build up that, that data bank in the most easy, cost-effective way to report up the supply chain. There's absolutely no doubt we'll have to do that. And as I say, that'll come through through emissions reporting, it'll come through waste management, river health, animal welfare. I think they're all known to us that those issues um, needed to continue to be improved and reported. But as Carmel says, that's now coming as a more important measure, whether it's because of market access into, say, Europe, uh, whether it's compliance regulatory related or whether it's one of our customers like a retailer saying we need to move with you down this path.
13: So how could an adoption of ESG guidelines within Australian agribusiness impact your bottom line? Here's market analyst and founder of episode three Matt Dalgleish.
15: On farm perspective I think it's going to be more of a um, giving if the farmers get able to demonstrate they're fulfilling certain ESG criteria that they will be able to continue to have access to some of those key export markets that we use so but I think you know as a non-farm level perspective I feel that it's going to be more a matter of maintaining that kind of important access to all those diverse markets rather than attaching an actual premium for doing or at least satisfying these ESG hurdles.
13: Yeah, so you think it'll become, I guess, a, a box checking exercise to stay in the same markets that you've potentially already been trading into.
15: Yep, that's right. Yeah, and that, and then by default, I guess that if you aren't able, as a on as 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 an individual farm, able to demonstrate, um, you know, particular criteria that that satisfies the end client, um, that that then you could lose access, and and then that could then follow with a price discount rather than you know so you kind of I guess by default you're getting less so you know those that are involved aren't necessarily going to get a premium but you might be you know reducing your opportunities um, if you're not able to demonstrate the criteria that's required um i guess this is something that, that focus you know we we're looking at something like the eu where we're still negotiating through a free trade or attempted to get a free trade agreement through there but you know the eu are, are pushing ahead with this um green diplomacy or green agenda i think it's by 2035 um that they're going to have some significant changes and if if um if if countries that are trading into that marketplace are not fulfilling the standards that they, that they want for their own internal um, producers, that, then you'll get um, forms of like, tariff or barriers to trade to get into those markets.
2: That is Matt Dalgleish from Episode 3 speaking to Alice Marshall, ending Alice Marshall's reports on ASG. And many of you have a discerning eye on this on the text line. I will not be lectured by on ASG by this bank, says Graham in East Gippsland. Commonwealth Bank was the bank speaking earlier in. And this one saying, oh, my God, Robert Poole from murray Goulburn giving advice on governance. Yes, that is the one and the same, but Robert Poole now works for KPMG speaking there. You're listening to The Country Now yeah, Let's move away from changes in... Uh, corporate governance and and operations of businesses and let's talk about well an implement that bucks the no-till trend certainly does that but it has still been named machine of the year at the Wimmera machinery field days the Butte disc chain can be used to kill weeds and level out rough paddocks and Angus Verley spoke with Eddie Nagorka from Horsham Hydraulics which builds a frame for the chains to be fitted to so
16: it's a light tillage machine uh, yeah, used for various applications. Uh, one is stubble management, knocking down stubble, chopping up stubble, um, incorporating the stubble back into the soil. Um, used for levelling out paddocks, especially this year with so many um, uneven paddocks and wheel ruts and that sort of thing from the harvest. Uh, so yeah, people are uh, you know lightly working the soil on top and, and smoothing paddocks out and incorporating some of that material into back into the soil.
5: And that the, the digging effect of the discs
16: just comes from their own weight, there's no other downforce? No, there's no downforce, so it, there's, the system of the weights is a really good system that we can add weights uh, to the discs, so with, with no weights you sort of can go um, basically from running on top of the ground, just scratching the surface, to adding weights going to 110 kilos per metre uh, of weight, uh, you can get down you know, probably your, your three, three and a half inches into the ground in the right conditions. So yeah, it's a really good system that can be adjustable quite easily to suit that application. So those weights, they just bolt on or you, you just unbolt them? Yeah so the the system's really easy so you don't need to pull the chain apart to um, remove or fit the the weights, they just slip on the chain itself, uh, put two bolts in and um, yeah do them up and away you go.
5: And varying the weight as you said either to, uh, to achieve a deeper digging effect or to I suppose achieve the same effect in different soils whether they're
16: softer or harder soils? Yes, yeah, so it can depend um, season to season. At the moment, the ground's uh, gone really hard on top. Uh, it's taking a bit of breaking through, so you know we're, we're adding weights to be able to, you know, break the top of the soil. Um, other years it might be a bit softer, and, and you wouldn't need weights. So you know, you can sort of go season to season, paddock to paddock, and and change your setup of what you want to do.
5: And the the discs we're looking at here are bolted to your own uh, bar, but they can be retrofitted to to other bars.
16: Yeah, they can be retrofitted to yeah the other the other brands on the market. So you know, and and sell a lot uh, of the retrofit chains to those machines as well. Most grain growers now are, are running no-till
5: systems, but you still find there is uh, a demand in certain situations for this machine.
16: Absolutely, and and we're finding now. I've had uh, quite a few no-till farmers uh, say to me recently that their paddocks are in. The conditions that uh, you know require some tillage on them to get them back flat again, especially after this last season being so wet, uh, it's really had an impact on the paddocks. Uh, they're getting rough, and uh, you know wheel tracks and that everywhere. So they're uh, you know looking at, at going to this system, uh, not on an every year basis, but the odd occasion when they need to yeah, level their paddocks again. And weed control.
5: Uh, chemical resistance is a big problem with some weeds in certain areas uh, is it effective at digging out those hard to kill weeds
16: yeah it's uh, really good results with with yeah plucking the weeds out uh, it just pulls them out of the ground sits them on top so it's it's really um, satisfying to see that when you go and have a look uh after where you've been through when you've just got these weeds sitting on top and you know farmers are really loving that as well about the product that that's what it does, and it also you know cuts hogweed and things like that up so that you get rid of the stringiness so that so the cedar can go through it.
2: That's Eddie Nagorka speaking there with Angus Verley. You get the feeling Angus really loves kicking the tyres on things at field days, and I'm here for it. Great job, Angus. Thank you for that. Thank you for the week. Uh, on the Country Hour where we've been up to the mountain calf sales. If you miss those programs, go back, listen to them in the Country Hour podcast feed. It's well worth it. Annie bringing you a lot there with Emma and Sarah. Angus has been at the Wimmera Field Days this week. We've had people everywhere. Kelly Hollingworth has been at late night meetings you're going to be hearing a lot about in the next week or so as well. So uh, stay tuned to that. The Country Hour out and about, hopefully live where you are as well sometime soon and we'll catch you again on Monday. Have a great weekend.